Father in heaven, even as we consider the way this Lord's prayer ends, that is what we get to talk about today. Delivering us from the power of the evil one, for yours indeed is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And that gives us great comfort. And Lord, may it do so as we look at this psalm together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to invite you, as we continue our study in the book of Psalms, the second book of the Psalms, uh, the second the book two in that section of the book of Psalms. We're looking this morning at Psalm 58, so if, I would encourage you to open your Bibles to Psalm 58 and read along with me as I read from, uh, the, from this psalm. Would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word? To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a mictum of David, Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ears so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. This is God's word. Just have a seat. This is one of those psalms that, you know, most of us would like to skip as we look at it because they're a tough psalm to preach on. This is what is, uh, theologians often call the, one of those imprecatory psalms, a psalm that is calling down judgment and, and a very descriptive judgment upon people. And it's, it's one of those psalms that, you know, makes you wonder. When you read it, it should make you feel some measure of, of tension inside. I mean, it may be that you feel this tension because you found yourself wanting to pray a prayer like that sometimes. Or maybe when you read a, a psalm like that, you, you, you want to stick out your hand and think, well, oh, we don't do that anymore. You know, that was Old Testament stuff. We're in the New Testament stuff. We're in a time of love and grace and mercy and therefore, you know, we don't pray this prayer anymore. And so the question becomes, what do we do with these psalms? What do we do with these psalms? Why are they in here? And are there times when, when we can pray them? And if so, when are those times? And if so, why are we to pray those psalms? And so I want to look at the psalm in that way, really answering that question. You know, when is it okay, if it ever is? And then why is it okay? if it ever is. I mean, I know that some of you in here have probably, if not prayed a psalm like this, you've at least thought it in your head when you think about some of the, some of the, the leaders that we look about in the world. I mean, maybe you're thinking that about you know, Putin right now with what he's doing in Ukraine. Maybe some of you think that about our own president right now. Or maybe you thought about it our former president. I've talked with several of you, and I can see, see the venom coming out when you talk about particular president that you don't like, whether it's this one or that one or one in the former, former, uh, a former one. 
There is this sense when we see leaders in the world uh, behaving in such an awful way that perhaps we feel like the only thing we can do is pray a prayer like this. And that's kind of hinting of hinting of the answer to the question, can we pray a prayer like this, and why would we have such a prayer like this? And, and really, the simple answer is this, that we have prayers like this ultimately so that we will be comforted to know that there is a judge over all the earth. Because when you're looking at the leaders of the world, people in power over you, and they're doing things that seem abusive and that you really have no recourse to do anything about, it will drive you bonkers. It will drive you to despair unless you know there actually is a judge who is standing over them. I know oftentimes in, in, in our lifetimes we don't see the activity of that judge, but just to know there is a judge over them gives us a great deal of comfort. So we're going we're gonna to look at it like that. I mean, the, the, the highlight of the, the feel and the flavor of this psalmist's prayer is found kind of in verse 10. It's one of those that, you know, maybe you want to make this your new theme song. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. I mean, that's a pretty descriptive uh, uh, desire to bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Is it ever okay to do that? So the first question about, you know, asking, is it okay? We need to consider that because it should come with some measure of hesitancy. We shouldn't just whip this prayer off anytime we want to. Uh, while, while it's in the Bible, while it's a model for us in prayer, while it's offered to the people of God to, to pray in a time of worship, certainly there has to be some measure of hesitancy to offer up a prayer like this. It should make you somewhat pause. I mean, when you think about the way Jesus taught us to pray, and we think about the Lord's Prayer, I mean, we, we prayed that through the service as we go through our liturgy, it doesn't necessarily have an obvious imprecatory feel to it. Uh, we're going to actually talk about, we're going to revisit the Lord's Prayer towards the end of, uh, of this conversation, but, but it doesn't necessarily feel that way. And when you think about the sermon in which Jesus was giving that teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, the greater context of that, and you know that the heart of what Jesus was preaching certainly had to do with being merciful and love. He says this, for example, in Matthew 5, uh, beginning as for, verse 43, You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends out rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So when you think of a prayer like that, and you're thinking of asking the Lord to bathe your feet in the blood of the wicked, how do you reconcile the aspect that we are supposed to both love these wicked and somehow find some measure of relief when we get to bathe our feet in their blood? I mean, that's a pretty big contrast. It's a, it's a pretty challenging thing to understand. So, we have to work our way through this. I mean, just before that particular teaching on love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, Jesus says this about the way people treat you. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. 
And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So, there seems to be such a contradiction. Is this giving, uh, giving food to the one who would claim, uh, well, the God of the Old Testament was a God of vengeance, the God of the New Testament is a God of mercy. And I would suggest to you, no, we have to be awful careful in saying that. God doesn't change. He doesn't change from, from the beginning of time to the end of time. I mean, we even see that here about the nature of the Father. In verse 45, we just read it, the reason that you're to love your enemies is so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, it isn't the Father who's wicked and wrathful and the Son who is the merciful one. No, this is the character and nature of the Father who allows His Son to shine on both the righteous and the wicked. So, we're following the model of the Father Himself when we treat our enemies with love as we pray for those who persecute us. So, there's this, there's this aspect. So, what do we make about this? I mean, there is a, there's a good tension to feel. So, when is it, when is it okay to do that? And I think the, the best clue for us to understand is, is considering the context in which this psalm comes. Uh, this is a psalm of David. And uh, for those of you who know something about David and the life of David, we've been talking about him a lot since we've been going through the Psalms. I mean, David is often called the man after God's own heart. We know a lot about David's life. David was, before he was a king, he'd been anointed after he had killed the Goliath, or actually, uh, right before he had uh, killed the giant Goliath as just a young boy. He'd grown up to become one of the generals in King Saul's army, achieving great success and to the to the consternation of Saul himself, who grew jealous and eventually sought to kill him on multiple occasions. So David had a pretty, a, a pretty long list of enemies, starting with some very powerful people, King Saul being one of them. It wasn't the only time that someone was after him. Later in his life, a time in which many of the commentators would associate with the writing of this psalm, when his son Absalom tries to overtake uh, David and to seize the throne from him causing David literally to flee and run from his life from the city of Jerusalem, uh, barely escaping. So you have this, this very particular context within the life of David where he has very real enemies. But I want you to notice how David treats every one of those enemies. David knows that he's been anointed to be king and replace Saul. And yet on multiple occasions, he has opportunity to do away with Saul, and he doesn't take it. There's one particular time that Saul is on, his, is on his tail, and he's on literally on one side of the mountain, and Saul is on the other, and they're doing this kind of thing, like when you're kids and you're going around the kitchen table trying to catch the other one. They're like that. Saul is about to catch David and his, his, his small band of men when he suddenly gets interrupted by a messenger saying, hey, the Philistines are coming to attack, and so he had to depart and go uh, defend Israel against the Philistine attack. But he, fit, he, he does that, and then he comes back to where he knew David was, and he starts looking for David again. And while he's looking for David there, and they're resting and wondering where to go, Saul has to go into a cave because he's got to take care of some business. And as he's there, David and his mighty men happen to be hiding in the cave, and they see him, and one says, look, God has handed him into your hand. Do what your hand finds to do, with the assumption that 
David has the right and expectation to kill his enemy. But instead, David goes and he cuts off the corner of his robe. And later, when Saul is out of the cave, he goes up and explains, look, God gave you into your hand, unto my hand, but I did nothing to harm you. I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. And even the cutting of the robe caused David to feel some measure of uh, conviction. There's another time later on when, this, when the army is looking out for looking for David, and they're all asleep one night, and David and one of his men creep, sneak into the camp to the very heart where Saul himself is sleeping. And David's fellow soldier is ready to run his sword right through him on behalf of David if David himself won't do it, and David won't let him do it. Instead, they take his spear, and they take his water jug, and they move far away, and they call to them saying, look, we could have killed you again. So this was the way David treated his enemies. And even when Absalom caused him to flee the kingdom, he's telling his, his, his army, don't let any harm come to my son Absalom. Isn't this fascinating? Absalom has threatened his life and caused him to flee from the appointment that God Himself has given him as king over Israel. And yet his view towards these individuals is compassion. Isn't that interesting? And yet this is the same David that's praying that God would bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. So what's different? What's going on? I think the key is that we never find David praying for God to personally vindicate him over his personal enemies. It's not, I want you to go after these wicked people because they have hurt me. It's not a personal thing. In other words, these particular people uh, about whom he is calling down God's judgment are in a very unique position. They're in a position of power. They're in a position of authority over God's people. Look how he begins in verse 1. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? So this is their position. They're they're called gods. This is another word for the rulers of earth. Now, there are places when he uses a similar term, not quite the same Hebrew word, and he's referring to the spiritual uh, beings that oversee uh, the world. But now he's talking about the earthly rulers. How do we know that? Because verse 3 talks about how they came from the womb. So we know we're talking about earthly rulers whose job it is to judge the children of man rightly. That's their job. That's their calling. That's their place. And they're not doing that. Instead, in their hearts they devise wrongs. Uh, Your hands deal out violence on earth. Violence on earth. So there is this people that are in positions of power... And when you're in a position of power, you realize there's, there's no one over you to hold you accountable. And that's the hard thing. When the people are suffering, they really have no recourse. There is nothing else that can be done other than appeal to God as the judge. It, you know, I, one of the, I think one of the greatest documents in our history is the Magna Carta. You know, when they wrote that, finally acknowledging the king is not above the law, but he's under the law trying to get some measure of accountability to even the leaders. And, you know, we would do good in this country to remember the Magna Carta and hold our own leaders accountable, but that doesn't seem to happen. You can go back president after president after president and see the things that they've done, and you try to go back and look and see which one doesn't deserve to be in prison because of the activity, and yet there's no one to hold them account. And so it's when, it's when these people are plotting. It's not just a, 
you know, a, a mistake. I made a mistake in judgment here or there. No, this is a devising of wrongs while they're on their bed. They're plotting and planning and, and orchestrating things so that they can secure and increase perhaps their power. I mean, this has been the pattern all throughout history. We, 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 even secular philosophers write about the, the seductive nature of power. Absolute power corrupts absolutely is the phrase. Because we get that. Once you've tasted that power, it seduces you to want more and more of it and more of it. And so while it may not be that you're out to unfairly treat the people, what you are doing is ruling them in such a way that while it may benefit them at some times, it may not at other times, but your overarching goal is to, is to secure your own power. I mean, even Absalom was doing that in the kingdom. This is the, in, if you go and read the account of Absalom's rebellion in 2 Samuel chapter 15, this is what he was doing before uh, uh, leading up to his, his rebellion. Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate, and when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land, then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So we see that there is this devising in order to gain power. And while some of those people coming to Absalom may actually have received fair judgment, it wasn't so that they would give fair judgment. It was so that he could win their heart, so that he could secure their power. And the danger of that is sometimes that might benefit you, but other times it might. Ultimately, justice isn't being served, but the individual. And in the end, it leads to violence in the hands of these people. And so the only prayer left that you can actually pray is this one, is to pray for God to come down in judgment upon these people. So you think, when is it okay? Well, it's okay when you're praying against the corrupt leaders who are in positions of power. So why is it okay? If there's times when it's okay, why is it okay? And we've, we've hinted at one reason already, because the people that are meant to be helped and offer justice are getting hurt instead. That's, that's one reason. But there's more to it than that as well. I mean, as you think, as you think about, let's examine these, these wicked for just a minute. For he talks about them and how their wickedness begins at birth, and it only grows, talking about this appetite for violence. The wicked, in verse 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Now, I know we could say that often about people and in terms of understanding that we're all born sinners. We're all born in the womb guilty. But he's specifically talking about the wicked and the nature of it. And it's more even than that. As, as we go on, we see that these men who are in power are in power according to God's own providence. And that's the thing that gets us. Paul explains that very explicitly in Romans chapter 13. He says, let every person be subject to to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? 
Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, this is a fascinating text. He's talking about why are there people in authority at all? And the reason there are is to punish wrongdoers, is to bring the sword of God upon them for the good of His people. So when you have rulers who are doing the opposite of God's intent for when He's put them there, we are praying such prayers. Now, here's the irony. It doesn't mean we stop submitting to the authority of the rulers. We don't take up the sword ourselves. Instead, we we are praying that God would bring the sword. But listen as he goes on to talk about this. So these men are put in positions of authority in order to do, uh, to, uh, to bring about the justice of God for his people, for all people. That's why they're put in power at all. And listen to how David describes them as he goes on in verse 4. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. That kind of fits what we even read about in, in Romans 13. They bear the sword. They have venom. They have power in order, in other words, to bring judgment, to bring death. They have the instruments there on purpose. But instead of using them according to the will of God, they're not. Like the snake who's supposed to listen to the voice of the charmer or the tune of the charmer, it's not. So it's like the snake that's not submitting to the charmer. The ruler who's given the fangs and the venom is not submitting to the will of God, his charmer, meant to be. So that's the imagery that's being used. So thus, the imprecatory prayer gives voice to this wrong that we should and do feel deeply in our soul, especially because there's no one else to hold them accountable. God alone must show himself, and he must do so with vengeance. Otherwise, the result is that men will continue to say in their hearts, there is no God. There is no God. The wicked could do whatever they want, and there is no accounting. So when we continue to read, it's why we can pray with the fervor of the psalmist, and this is where we get the real bite of the psalm in verse 6 through 9. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrow, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. The kids love that line, right? You like that one. Like the stillborn child who never sees the sun, sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. Now, in the Hebrew, there's a lot that's, that's difficult to translate this. And if you read different versions, you're going to find quite different translations here. Uh, for example, instead of let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. It's probably better translated, let, let the miscarriage that melts away. Let them be like the miscarriage that melts away, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. There's a, meant to be a parallel phrase there. But what's he talking about? You're breaking the teeth in their mouths. What are the teeth used for? The same thing as the venom of the snakes used for. You're stripping away their ability to bring harm. You know, that's the ultimate goal of the justice of God. And it's supposed to be so complete, so complete and so clear that it's just as though they've been swept away, 
Sooner than the pots can feel the heat of thorns, they are swept away. That's the idea. Let them be completely snuffed out. Let it stop altogether. So that, and the reason for that is found in verses 10 and 11, the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. And I think to best understand that line, you have to know who's writing it. Okay, this is David. David is a warrior. David fought in many wars, and the wars that they fought in were not those with drones. They were very personal. I mean, they fought with swords. So when you fought your enemy, you did not win without getting his blood on you. So it was a very familiar sense of how do we know we actually have victory? Well, when we're splashing about in the blood of our enemy. That's when we know the victory is secure. So while we think that's really gruesome, you know, to a warrior who's writing this, this is familiar language to his soldiers. They understood what this meant. Uh, he will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked, meaning that the righteous will finally find their justice. Mankind will say, and this is the result, mankind, all of the earth will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. No longer will man be able to say there is no God. Now we know there is a God because those who had the highest authority have been called to account by one who is higher still. That's the picture. That's the idea. When God brings His vengeance, justice will return to the streets. Now I want to revisit the Lord's Prayer for just a sense because we talked about how it doesn't necessarily have this imprecatory feel, and yet I don't think it's totally absent from that prayer. I mean, think about how we begin. Our Father in heaven hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he's asking for your kingdom to come. Now, anytime the kingdom comes, especially in the Old Testament, when you read the prophets of the Old Testament, the idea of the coming of God is coming on the clouds with judgment. So, when you're asking the Lord to come, you're asking God come and and bring this prayer about. Bring justice, judgment upon those who have thwarted it. Kingdom, may your kingdom come. So there is this implied essence of this kind of prayer, even in the prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray. Now, if we think about Jesus being God and Him coming, and we think, well, did Jesus bring about the wrath of God when He came? We think, well, no, He came and He brought mercy. But there's a sense in which when Jesus came, even the first time, He brought wrath with Him. He brought the wrath of God and put it on display before all the world. That's what He was doing on the cross. He was drinking the cup of God's wrath that was being poured out for justice. You say, justice upon who? Justice upon all those who are born guilty and yet have turned and taken refuge in Christ. And if you recall, even Jesus was talking about the next time He would come, He would come in the clouds, it would be a a scene of judgment. He's talking about Matthew, in Matthew uh, uh, 23, 24, and 25, He's talking about how when, uh, that God is going to visit judgment upon Israel itself because the leaders in Israel fit this description of this psalm. And literally, there was blood in the streets that flowed as you read the historian's account. Literally, they could bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked because it was flowing in the streets when God came in judgment 
upon Jerusalem in 70 AD. That was the picture. So there is judgment to come when God, when we pray the Lord's, uh, when we pray your kingdom come, we are praying a a sense of this imprecatory prayer of judgment. And by the way, Jesus wasn't beyond praying this himself or even speaking these words himself because in Matthew 23, that same, that leading up to that same conversation, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. And, se- and six more times, in a total of seven times, he's calling down woe upon the scribes and the Pharisees, the leaders of the people of Israel, which is why the judgment came upon Israel in 70 AD. He is praying this precatory prayer. He's asking for it to happen, and it happens. It comes about. There's other hints as well in Jesus' ministry as He talks about as He's passing by the fig tree and it's bearing no figs, for example, and He curses the fig tree which is a picture of Israel. This is going to happen. If I'm not going to find fruit here, it means the leaders have, a, have abandoned their job, and I'm going to bring judgment about. When he tells his disciples that you can look at this mountain and you can ask the Lord to be thrown into the sea and it will obey, I know we tend to interpret that as, see, you can pray anything you want and God will do it. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about that mountain, Mount Zion, the one that is being called to account with all of his woes, and God will pick it up and toss it into the sea. It's a prayer of judgment that he's telling you to pray. So there are times when we are called to pray prayers of judgment, but they're very narrow and they're very specific, and they're left to be prayers and not actions, so that, one, there will be justice for all mankind, And two, so that all the world will know there is a God, and indeed He will reward the righteous. And who are the righteous? The righteous are those who have taken refuge in God. You know, even as the Psalm 2, another great psalm that talks about the appointing of God's uh, Holy One, he's talking about ultimately the appointment of Jesus. He says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? And then he ends it with those the words, kiss the son lest you be angry and you perish in the way. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The idea of taking refuge in Christ is how you escape the judgment that's coming. Because when you take refuge in Christ, your guilt is put on the shoulders of Jesus, which is why we see him bloody on the cross. The wrath of God, the justice of God that comes with the coming of God was poured out on him on behalf of those who take refuge in him. Here's another interesting tidbit when he, in that section about how you, what does it mean to take refuge in Him? It means to trust what He has to say. When you think about that description of the coming kingdom in Matthew 23 and 24 and 25 when He's talking about the destruction that's going to come upon Jerusalem, when He says not one stone will be left on another of this temple, He says, when you see these signs, flee to the mountains. Now, that was an ironic thing to say because normally when you would see the signs of armies coming and approaching on you, the place that you would go when you live out in the villages is you go behind the great walls of the fortress that's in your city. Well, the great walls were in Jerusalem. The great walls especially were in that temple. He says, when you see these armies marching, don't go hide behind the walls of the temple. Flee to the mountains. Flee to the hills. Those who trusted Him and obeyed His words, were spared the judgment of God. 
that fell upon Israel. Those who didn't listen to him, who didn't believe him, went behind the walls, and they felt the judgment of God. So, how do you escape the judgment of God that you're praying for? (laughs) You take refuge in God, which means you listen to what He has to say, and you obey, because it's through your faith, which is on display by obeying what Jesus says to do, that you find your refuge. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that Jesus came the first time in order to take the brunt of your judgment on behalf of of those who would put their trust in you, who would seek refuge in you. Lord, I pray this morning that you would give us eyes to see Jesus as the one who who took the brunt of your judgment, took the wrath that was deserved upon the cross uh, on our behalf so that we might escape this great and awful judge. Lord, help us to be confident to know when we see things going on in this world that seem uh, to, to have no end in sight, that seem to have no one who can stop uh, the enemies, the, the corrupt powers that be. We look at what's happening in Ukraine as, as an example. It's like, who is there to stop him? When other world leaders creep up and seem to bring, take away freedoms in the earth, who is there to stop him? Lord, help us rest assured that you indeed are the great judge over the, all the earth. Help us to be cautious, but also to know when to pray such a prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.